Welcome to Code Together, a podcast for developers by developers, where we discuss technology and trends in industry. I'm your host, Tony Monkolspine. Generative AI has become extremely interesting and powerful in the last few years. Text-to-image models like Dolly and Stable Diffusion have become very popular, and NLP models like GPT-3 have given rise to applications like the newly released OpenAI chatbot ChatGPT. To understand the power of these tools, I asked ChatGPT, why is Empire Strikes Back the best Star Wars movie? The reply was this, it is a matter of personal opinion whether Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie. Some fans and critics may consider it to be the best film in the franchise for a variety of reasons. For example, the film continues the story of the original trilogy in a compelling and satisfying way, introducing new characters and revealing key plot points. The action sequences are also considered to be some of the best in the series, including the battle on Hoth and the lightsaber duel between Luke and Darth Vader. Additionally, the movie features some of the most iconic moments in the Star Wars franchise, such as the reveal of Darth Vader as Luke's father. I don't think anyone would argue with that assessment. Feel free to disagree with me later on Twitter. Generative AI is changing how we think about computer-human interaction, content generation, and even learning. Today we're going to talk about what this means for us as developers, some potential societal impacts generative AI may have, and some of the ethical and legal issues. Today I'm joined by two AI experts from within Intel. Ezekiel Lanza is an AI open source evangelist who works on several AI open source projects helping people discover the world of artificial intelligence. Ezekiel is a frequent AI conference presenter and the creator of several use cases, tutorials, and guides that help developers adopt open source AI tools. He holds a master's in data science. Welcome to the podcast, Ezekiel. Hi, Tony. Nice to meet you. Thank you for inviting me. Ben Consolvo is an AI solutions manager at Intel and lives near Houston, Texas. He has a master's degree in geophysics from the University of Western Ontario and enjoys digging into AI to solve some real world problems. Nice to have you, Ben. Nice to be here, Tony. All right, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Ezekiel, who is our kind of generative AI expert here, is going to tell us a little bit about what is generative AI? How does it work? And why should we be interested in it? Well, it's pretty interesting. Basically, why, what, how we can start explaining what is generative AI is uh, it's we can think as a program that can, for instance, use the existing content that you can find, like text, audio files, images, or whatever, to create new plausible content. Basically, what it means is uh, it enables computers or other devices to learn the underlying patterns uh, related to the to an input, and based on that, they can create new general content or similar content. Uh, how it works underneath is over the last five years or six years, there were uh, a huge advance in, t in, in a new paper called Attention is all, all You Need, that all these algorithms, they are based on the Transformers architecture. Basically, and without going in details, what the Transformers architecture uses is it has a, a, a layer, a particular layer compared with it other deep learning architectures that it's called attention. Uh, and what it basically does is once you have, once you are training your model, this particular layer uh, enables the algorithm or the model to understand which parts are most important in this input. It's something like you are talking, 
it's similar uh, as when you are talking with a with a person and you have a lot of noises around you for instance you have i don't know the street noise and you have a lot of different noises but you are paying attention to the person you are paying attention to some particular thing that this person is saying uh, so you are using your attention layer in your mind to pay attention on that particular part and these algorithms they can do something similar like, like that so when you for instance when you train those huge models because they are very huge and you have bases for instance like wikipedia reddit and all the text that you can find on 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 the on the internet sites uh, you can feed this algorithm you can train this algorithm and this algorithm will be able to get those insights of those patterns uh, in the phrases so once the algorithm knows how how a phrase is written how people write uh, they can try to emulate for instance how this uh, something similar right so if we'll like to teach a transformer with a bunch of with a lot of uh, of books of shakespeare for instance uh, the model can understand how is the Shakespeare way to write. So if you say, hey, can, can you complete the phrase? They can complete as as it was Shakespeare. So it's it's pretty interesting. Uh, the reality is that uh, as as you may think, uh, as you as you may imagine, is that you need a lot of data, you need a lot of compute to train those kind of models. But this is what some companies are doing and they are once they have this model trained what it's very useful for the developers is that they can use this kind of models to uh, to adapt to their solutions right so um but basically what the generative ai scope it's going really big in the next day in the next years or even in the next days or weeks it's pretty amazing uh, but everything started five years ago or four years ago with this Transformers architecture, and now we are starting to see some real benefits, which is pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, and I think both of you guys are really interfacing with the community at large. Um, ben actually um, does a lot of work with trying to interface with developers. Ben, how do you think that this kind of affects developers, this type of generative AI model? Yeah, there's so many ways that uh, it can it can help with things that developers are working on. I mean, obviously, in particular, you think about code generation and, um, you know, looking at things like GitHub Copilot, where, you know, you can uh, have some code generated off of a doc string or off, off of um, like a, an initial line of code. Um, and then same with uh, debugging, you know, entering, maybe entering some code and then having the uh, the bot be able to debug some of your code or find an error with it that might take you um, a lot of hours. Um, how, how I see the AI helping is freeing up more time for, for creative thinking um, because some people would say, well, this AI is just going to replace my job. And that could be partially true, but I think the, the creative thinking aspect of um, kind of stitching things together won't go away, but that's that's my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I think that sounds probably right. I think one of the interesting things that we see a lot of online as I look around is people saying, how do I prompt 
the generative AI the right way to give me the answer that I want. I've seen a lot of people talking about the different parameters that you need, and it's almost the same thing where somebody says, hey, can you help Google this for me because I'm trying to find the right answer online. I need the right Google search words. It's kind of the same thing here where how do I know what to tell either ChatGPT or Copilot or even Stable Diffusion or Dolly what I want so I actually get the output that I need. Um, I don't know when you guys were playing with this uh, technology, if you guys had any experience with something funny where you type something in and you kind of got a, a goofy output from what you would have expected. Yes, I mean, it's 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 always funny when you try to to have a conversation with a with this kind of algorithms or models because um they can behave as a as a as a normal person, but for instance, when you try to 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 ask for some code or when you try to find some bugs uh or even if you say, "Hey, which is which is faster uh, to run uh in one place compared with other place?" So the answers are always always really really fun but is i believe that it's something that as 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 ben said i mean we we need to think the technology as something that can help us uh that can help us to co-create or can help us to to guide uh of course it could be dangerous a lot of people just care about okay this thing will be replacing people will be changing everything uh i think that it's a really good tool to try to to help to help and it's also really needed to 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 define the boundaries um because we need to know where we should use that and i think that it will be happening in in, in the next years or the next months uh maybe some companies will start to monetize that we start to find those use cases uh, where this can apply now it could be really fun if you like to use a stable diffusion you can create a video uh, you can create things that are really really fun you can create filters or different images from your your face for instance it's really really funny uh, but when you try to see okay how does it work in the real case scenario is it useful uh, for a use case it is a it's a business case behind that uh, I think that this will be another thing that will be in the future to to allow to allow this thing to 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 to, to be even even bigger Ben wh why don't you tell us about uh, we were talking about prompts that are weird and you mentioned one that you saw online on Twitter yeah no I had, I'd seen it on LinkedIn um, it was it was uh, somebody basically typing in something about proving that a that a rational number was irrational and uh, the interesting thing is that it comes up with you know a proof by contradiction to prove you know you can type in prove that four is irrational into chat GPT and it goes through the proof and concludes that four is irrational and so yeah there's there's obviously some you know, you can't trust this completely. And it's, I would say, in really dependent on the, you know, this, the, the, the input data largely, you know, is what informs these models. And so it's, it's just interesting, you know, that sometimes you can come up with something that, that look might look correct, you know, if you didn't know any better, uh, and it comes up with kind of an interesting statement, but it might be entirely untrue. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that we want to look at a little bit, right? What are the limitations 
of these models uh, and, and the applications of them. So for instance, some people online were saying that potentially something like ChatGPT could replace Google because it gives you a very well-formed answer to a question that you may ask. But I think the challenge is you kind of show there, Ben, is that if you ask it to tell you something that is incorrect, it will tell you in a very nice way that sounds very true, um, that what you've asked is, uh, you know, that four is irrational, but yet that isn't the case. Whereas at least with Google, whether you like Google or not, or any other search engine, you can see the source of that information and kind of determine whether or not you feel like that's a valid source of information. Yeah, and I think that one, you know, one potential uh, help or, uh, you know, to, to help answer that kind of problem would be because these these generative AIs can generate multiple answers and they usually just select one of the best ones, you know, based on some accuracy score or some metric. Um, so you could actually, you know, have ChatGPT give you like six or seven different generated responses and maybe be able to critically think about some of those options, just like you would in a Google search. And you're not going to go necessarily just with the first, um, you know, the first result, but maybe you'll look through you know, 10 or 11 sources and see, okay, well, maybe from all these different perspectives, this, this is what makes sense. So I'm going to, you know, formulate my, my thinking on it based on, based on looking at multiple outputs. Yeah. And also I think that what, what can be pretty interesting that maybe it's something that, that open AI, I believe that it's working is that all the information that we have in the chat GPT or these models, it's information that it's already, I mean, it's trained and the model has this information. I mean, it can be true, it cannot be true. Uh, the problem is when this model can start to reasoning or to start to do some reasoning. But what I think that the next level could be, okay, now that we have the model that we, have, that we can understand, what if we allow these models to try to do web search uh, instead of doing uh, your your answer, I mean they can be trained, but they can double check with web search, uh, which is another challenge, right? Because when you do a, a a web search and you need to, okay, the algorithm should read the web page, and maybe it's not text, maybe you have JavaScript, maybe you have pictures, you have images, you need to read these images. Uh, it has a lot of technologies that can that can go over there also, uh, because you need to convert it image to text and you need to reason about and you need to reason after that uh, so i think that this could be another another thing that could be very interesting in the next years that is okay we have the models they are very capable to understand the the patterns the language and so on uh, but let's try to use or let's try to fix the boundaries giving them more more tools to double check or to cross checks uh, instead of having a person, right? Um, in these particular cases, I think that this could be pretty, pretty awesome, also. And I know that OpenAI is it's working with something like Web API or something like that. Uh, but it's trying to provide the web access. And if you try with it, Chat GPT, and you ask some questions, they say, "I cannot browse. I cannot go to the internet to look for your answer." Right? Yeah, and one of the I guess we'll, we can move on kind of a little bit from the technology to kind of the, the ramifications of the technology. One of the many questions that I see online where people are talking about, especially the image generation, 
but it also applies to the, the text and, and code generation type generative AI is what are the copyright issues? Who actually owns the output of these models? Um, so kind of in, in general, uh, I, I guess just what are your guys' thoughts on that? I know that there's lawsuits and things like that <laughs> already uh, around Copilot, but what do you guys think in terms of um, either, not the legality, obviously we're not lawyers, um, but what do you guys think about like, how does this affect the applicability uh, of this type of generative AI? Yeah, I think uh, just thinking about the kind of the training data in the first place, at least I looked into GPT-3 training data and it essentially is a conglomeration of inter internet sources, you know, Wikipedia, a common crawl, some books. Um, and, you know, all of that training data is like, you know, from all kinds of sources on the internet. It's, it's uh, you know, it's like, almost like a general human, um, you know, knowledge base, uh, or at least what people have chosen to present on the internet in these different places. And so in that sense, it feels like it should be open because it's, uh, you know, the, the data source itself is coming from all these different people all over the globe. Um, but then, you know, I think about too, the, the generation of the the model and the work that goes into that and the company that's responsible for that too. And so there's that side of things where you're, you're looking at, well, this company is the one who put in the work to, to make this happen and made it, make it a reality for people. So those are just a couple of thoughts that I have. Uh, yes. Uh, from completely agree. Um, since GPT and all these other models, they are trained with the data that you have in internet and that that is written by people that has internet access that we can think that is most of the people but it's not the 100 percent of the world so when you are trained as models you can you can get some some bias uh, because you are not representing the 100 percent of the population or the 100 percent of the way to think or to or to write uh, even it happens if you go to the hugging phase model and you try to use to complete phrases or to, to, to complete a phrase and you say and it's really really frustrating when you say okay the, the white person works as and as something as a lawyer and you, if you put the same thing with the black person works as and the result is completely biased so this is this is a really problem that we can find when we are working with this kind of models that are that are trained with popular data with the data that is available and this is a problem that we should be aware when we are working on that and this is why responsible ai and ethics ai is so important to try to avoid avoid those biases to to try to make it more more compatible to make it more reasonable uh, instead of just working for the majority right and i completely agree with the copyright stuff because now if you see a uh, an article written by a person compared with an article written by a chat, G chat GPT or GPT. Um, I mean, you can you can try to get confused, right? I mean, you, you are you able to understand or are, are you able to identify which is the person, which is the computer or the algorithm? And this could be a really, really problem because uh, what if in the future we have a text or we have something that is created by a 
by these algorithms and who is in who is responsible right it's not the algorithm because when you go to the when you download the algorithm you have a, an 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 open license when you are responsible from they they are not responsible from uh, what the algorithm can give you they put disclaimers they put a lot of things so who is responsible then so if you are building an application using this algorithm you should be responsible so you will be against the law or not but who knows uh, and and this could be a really challenging and it happens with all the other technologies for instance that w the laws or the things that people that the lawyers start to, to to see or to pay attention maybe it can happen in the next years right so first we have the, the technology yeah no i was i was reading about this bias issue in the GPT-3 paper, and I thought that they summarized it really well. So I'll quote, uh, it's just like a couple of sentences from their paper on the bias aspect of the training data. So they say, uh, broadly, our analysis indicates that internet trained models have internet scale biases. Models tend to reflect stereotypes present in their training data. Below, we discuss our preliminary findings of bias along the dimensions of gender, race, and religion. We probe for bias in the 175 billion parameter model and also in smaller models to see if and how they are different in this dimension. So they go through, you know, religion and race um, and, and gender, and they kind of uh, highlight some of the, the biases that are present in, in, the, in the model that they've trained. The interesting thing to me is that it, it is reflect, the, the biases are reflective of everything that's present in the internet data. So um, it's it's at least a representation of whatever's present online. Um, you know, that's not like a good thing necessarily because there can be a lot more, you know, potentially biased information um, on these topics online, but at the very least reflects, okay, well, this is what the, the training data reflect. It's, but most people, when they just look at an output, they're they're not going to think about that. They're just going to look at, well, that's not right. That's not fair. So um, it's an important thing to address. But as a as a data scientist, it it reminds me, okay, well, this is where you know the data came from, and that's how we can explain why this is the case. Yeah, that that makes sense. And as a developer, um, I was obviously really interested in uh, GitHub Copilot when it came out. And also ChatGPT, because you can ask ChatGPT to generate some code. Um, so for Copilot, there was, uh, I think, Professor Tim Davies at Texas A&M posted on Twitter that he had a library. Uh, and it seemed like that when he asked for Copilot to generate code, it was pretty much generating his code verbatim. And that's a very specific type of example. It's a very, um, what's the right word? It's not a general algorithmic problem. It's a very specific algorithmic problem. So it would make sense that Copilot wouldn't have a lot of examples to draw from. Um, but similarly, I, I tried to do something with ChatGPT yesterday and try to have it generate a essentially a one API sickle Mandelbrot code, which I would also think is relatively fairly specific, um, being kind of in the, the space where Intel and one API live. But, and it generated some code that looked very reasonable and would run correctly but it actually didn't match up to any of the source code that I could find online through Google, through all of the common sources where I would expect it to have drawn from. So in that case, I don't even know whether or not that would be considered something that should be 
copyrighted or not, I thought was, was really funny, Ben, is when you were saying, I'm going to quote their paper. That's something you don't get from ChatGPT or Copilot. I, I, I have no idea what the source is there when I get it from them, whereas at least from you, I know where's the providence of this information and how trustworthy is this, this source? Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, yeah, looking at, you know, when you're speaking to somebody, you know that it's coming from their own thoughts, from their brain. And, and then, you know, as I'm citing a specific paper, you know, you can see this is where it's coming from. But yeah, um, when it generates something, you don't necessarily know the source of, of where it's generating it from. You know, you know that it's broadly from this huge database of, I think they said in the paper, like there's a trillion words or, or basically more data than they can even train on, like to get through the, the whole training set. Um, but yeah, you don't know specifically when you ask a prompt, you know, where that's originating. Yeah. And this technology is definitely moving kind of how we think about uh, various technologies in society forward. So I, I also saw on Twitter about this the other day because I was looking for Twitter to see what interesting takes people had. Um, the box CEO said, and I'll quote him, um, there's a certain feeling that happens when a new technology adjusts your thinking about computing. Google did it. Firefox did it. I'm not sure Firefox did it, parenthetical. Um, AWS did it, the iPhone did it, and OpenAI is doing that with ChatGPT. And that's an interesting thought too, because I think that a lot of times technological advances are not seen by the general public, but it seems like with something like ChatGPT, there's a lot of people who are not even in the technology space who are trying it. I've got friends who are artists, right? Who are using Stable Diffusion and Midjourney and Dolly, and I've got you know, all kinds of people who are not in technology playing around with chat GPT just to see what kind of answers they get. So with kind of this shift that's kind of being suggested by this generative AI, where do you guys think this technology might take us in the future? I know Ezekiel, you touched on a little bit, but is there uh, some more directions or thoughts you might have on where, where does generative AI take us in the next five or 10 years? Yes, I think that uh, what the next years, uh, we need to to chase this 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 boundaries right because as you said when the technology is it's able to be used to people which is not tech or it's not technical people uh, it's when it really explodes um because it should be easy to to use easy to understand of course they won't go in details of how generative ai works but they if they can use it if a developer can download it and can create a new solution um, it will really really help what i think in the future is of course the text the text part of the giving recommendations is now happening which some companies that are offering i don't know if you like to write your blog post or whatever you can use these algorithms to give you advices uh, the future is about video uh, video image and also music um, i'm not pretty confident with the music thing because I don't know if I would like to, to listen to a, to a music artificially created, uh, but I think that the next, the, probably the next step will be related with the video, with the image to video, um, and, how to, to, and how to get this information. Because what I think is AI and all the algorithms, you need data to train that. And if you like to capture the data, and if you have an algorithm that can capture this data, for instance, 
we can capture the YouTube data. If you have a stable diffusion model that can convert all the data that we have in the videos in text, uh, I can use the data for something. I don't know for what, but I, but, but 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 you can extract this data. Uh, so I see that this could be uh, in the in the next years what could be uh, used. Um, but again, I mean. I believe that we will start in the next year to to listen to new songs created by by these algorithms, uh, which will be really fun to to listen. Um, but the realistic part is related with video and images. Yeah, no, I, on the on the music part, uh, Ezekiel, um, I I think it was yeah maybe a couple of months ago I listened to a, a video by Two Set Violin. They're a music. Uh, YouTube video channel and they they had a test where they they listened to classical music that was written by an actual composer in the past and then they had uh you know another piece of classical music that was written by AI by generative AI having been trained on you know some style or genre of of classical music and uh, in some cases yeah they weren't able to even as trained classical musicians weren't able to pick out the the composer from the AI generated um, music. Um, in some cases, the the AI just uh, was very repetitive and some of the themes didn't make a lot of sense. But in some cases, the music was very realistic sounding for that kind of composer and that time frame. So I think, yeah, I think music is something that will be improved upon and, and generated in a really interesting part of part of this. And also, it can, it can even help because when you're creating, I don't know, I used to play the drums, and we when you are creating music, you need to to try it. I mean, you don't have something in your mind, and maybe it can help you to create a new melody, and from that, uh, a musician can create a new song. I don't know, uh, but so then are we are we super? Do we just make us super lazy, or does it make us more creative? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's the same thing with the text, right? Um, if you are creating a blog and you, if you have something that is helping you, it's helping you to make it more creative or you can be lazy all the time. I mean, you, you can say, okay, let's, let's let the AI to do everything and that's it. Uh, but I mean, this is not the point, right? I mean, we should use the technology to help us to make it better, more creative and so on. But yes, it's, it's not easy to to find this point to be lazy or creative, right? Yeah, one of one of the things I thought about for text generation like ChatGPT is I haven't tried this on the platform. Actually, the platform because there's so many people on it right now, it's kind of <laughs> shutting. Like there's not they have too much traffic. They don't have enough capacity, so you can't actually write a lot on it right now, but um, I was thinking about, "Hey, can I just ask it to write an essay for me like as if, if I were a student?" And I want it to write an essay and I kind of give like a little bit of an abstract on the topic I want it to write on. And then, you know, how easily would it generate multiple versions of that? And could I actually present that to my teacher or my professor as a grade school student? And, and it seemed feasible for that level of writing, you know, um, that was one of the, I guess, potential abuses because, you know, it might um, it might make somebody lazy and not actually creatively think about how to write and, and express themselves. Uh, so that was one of the things that, that I was thinking about. Yeah, there was an editor, I want to say it was of TechRadar, who actually said, write me a 350 word 
article about ChatGPT in the voice of, and he used his name, and because he is well enough known and has enough public writing, it actually wrote a 350-word article for him, which he literally put an intro saying, this is the, the prompt I used, and then he just pasted the article, and that was his, his story. And it was really interesting. I'll, I'll try to find the link and put that in there for the listeners. It was pretty cool. Yes, and I believe that the, the, the artics part, I mean, the creative part, uh, it's something that we always say that, okay, we as humans beings, uh, we have something completely different like, like this. When, you, when, when you're talking about art, uh, that is a particular touch that someone can have and so on, that is different and you can't find yet um with a with ai even with fashion and when you are designing clothes and so on and it recalls me a use case that was it's not the same case but it's similar uh 10 years ago or 20 years ago with the with the gap uh ceo he started to say okay let's try to fire all the designers that we have all the fashion designers that we have and let's try to find or to design the clothes based on what the market says right so he started to capture data from their sites from all the data from the websites from the stores to say okay people will like to buy this kind of thing uh, from jeans or whatever uh, and it was and the result at the end was pretty bad pretty bad because at least in fashion what is an uh, it's a particular scope people uses what you see it's not what you want, it's what you see. So if you see a jean, if you see a LeBron James wearing, I don't know, his shoes, you probably would like to use it. Uh, this is how our mind works, right? I mean, we are not, I'm not saying nothing new, um, but in the fashion style, for instance, it was a completely failure. Uh, so this is why you need a fashionist, you need a designer, you need people designing clothes and so on. And I see something similar with art that we have a, this touch, I don't know, something completely different that AI can help, can provide us some insights, some data, uh, but it's not like a, a real person. Yeah, one of the one of the interesting interesting things with art is, or, or I guess just this technology in general is, so it's it's using this corpus of training data, whether it's images or text. And it's limited in what it can generate to that corpus, that you know, that set of data. So yes, it's generating something new, um, but it's really just kind of a combination of what's been before. Um, whereas you know, maybe with a fashion designer, like you were talking about, that somebody might come up with something, I guess, quote unquote, brand new that hasn't, that's not totally a combination of something that's been done before. Although I can argue with myself on that point because a lot of what we come up with is based on some past experience, but I, I still I still wonder, is there an aspect of like the human creativity that comes into play there that, uh, you know, a trained algorithm just can't come up with something that's totally new and unrelated to anything it's done before? Yeah, I'm hoping they bring back the 90s clothing so I oh, can yeah. use what's in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure the algorithms will come up with that or not. 
Um, since uh, this is a, a podcast where we typically talk about uh, programming developers and, and hardware solutions, um, you mentioned, Ezekiel, the amount of compute resources to actually train something like ChatGPT. So NLPs are well known for using a large amount of compute resources. Um, one of the cool things that we have now with Stable Diffusion is it's small enough that I can run it here on my laptop, I can run it on my workstation. Um, I'll put a little plug in. Intel has solutions, uh, OpenVINO. Um, we can run it through PyTorch. You can get Stable Diffusion generating images on your computer. Uh, is there a concern that you guys would have around the accessibility and the democratization of these types of solutions for for kind of how it well, how other people can use it, how businesses can use it, how individuals can use it? Yeah, I think that the that the open source mindset it's it's pretty pretty important because um, all these algorithms when people would like to use it, people would like to download the algorithm and they would like to implement into their solutions. So what it means is that this algorithm should be freely available. Of course, it's up to you uh, your application, but it should be available to be used uh, to any any developer. So the problems that the developers now can have is, okay, I have a huge model that can understand or they can create something like stable diffusion, but where can I run my application? Okay, so now I should be worried about what is the compute, which, what is the compute that I will be using? We will be running that in the cloud, in a computer, we will be optimizing. And this is why that there is a new trend that it's really interesting that it's about the how can you optimize or how can you get the optimizations of those transformers because they are they are huge networks. Of course, you don't need a huge power to train because somebody did it, uh, but you need power to run these inferences when you are offering a solution or we are offering something. So I believe that the part to make it available is really interesting to enable new use cases. Uh, but we also need this new trend to get optimizations, to get it running. I mean, the hardware is always needed. We always we need hardware to implement that, uh, even if it's in the cloud or whatever, you need hardware and, and you need to have this hardware optimized to be working with this with these huge models. I agree, you know, even, yeah, with these large transformer networks, these neural networks, you need, um, yeah, significant hardware for inference. But I, one of the initial thing that came to mind when thinking about this question is originally, you know, when the, for example, the GPT-3 model was trained from scratch, you know, it required a ton of compute. I think it was over a thousand petaflops or something. Um, and they were only really able to train it once. They actually, in their paper, noted that they had some overlap between their training and test data sets, and, but they weren't able to retrain it because it just takes so much money and so much time. But I think one of the things that makes you know these models now so accessible is that, yes, we have the pre-trained, we have the pre-trained version. Now we can fine tune it um, with a lot little hardware compared to the original training and the fine tuning just does such a, a good job downstream of this original trained model um, that we can use it for a lot of different tasks and, and relative at least to the original training cost, it's it's almost nothing to do inference 
Um, it's still, you know, a significant cost that you need if you're going to be, you know, 24 hours a day running a, some kind of GPU um, or accelerator. Um, but yeah, I think what makes it largely accessible is the fact that, you know, you can fine tune this with relatively little cost, a training cost, and then the inference is um, still runnable on like a, a single GPU. Well, I think that's about the end of our time today. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us, and I'd like to thank Ezekiel and Ben for joining us and providing their opinions about generative AI. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you, Tony.